So you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 11 and continue on through chapter 13 to verse 10. This is the largest chunk we have ever read in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> with the good news that you will find that uh, we will be done with 2 Corinthians by the end of October. So that we begin Daniel in November, the first week. So um, got something to look forward to here. Um, as you're turning there in your, your Bibles, uh, I had a couple of people have asked me recently about Israel and, and how do Christians respond to what's going on in Israel. It's, um, it's a very complicated situation, as you know, uh, a lot of history there. I took a number of classes in, in college on religion and international relations, and there's all sorts of views on all of these types of things. But I, I will say this, uh, anytime a country attacks another country aggressively, especially when it's a, a terrorist group as opposed to nations. It's never a good thing. So certainly pray for Israel as they've been attacked in, in that regard. Um, certainly I don't think that all Jews are believers. Uh, even Jesus acknowledges this fact that he says, wipe the dust off your feet when they don't receive the gospel message. And yet Paul also has this great prayer uh, in Romans 9 through 11 for uh, the Jews, and he's, he's, his heart's desire is that they would be saved, Right. And so he's, he's looking for an influx of Jews at some point in the future to come in a grand revival, to come to faith in Christ. I don't know how or when that happens, but uh, uh, if you have all the Muslim countries in the world wanting to blow them off the face of the map, maybe they'll start listening to the Christians after all. I don't know. Um, but that's not entirely the case. There are plenty of Muslims that don't see it that way. Um, so anyway, it's very complicated. Uh, pray for the Palestinians as well. There are some that are believers as well. So the believers on both sides, uh, but it's it's a very complicated affair. Pray that the terrorists would be dealt with according to God's judgment, and pray that those who uh, are innocent on both sides uh, would would be protected by the Lord and would would find salvation, refuge, and in Jesus Christ. If I go much farther than that, it would take a whole lesson just for that. But uh, just know it's a very complicated affair. We're certainly praying for uh, for those in Israel uh, as well as. Um, Ukraine and all the places around the world in which right now um, there are a lot of evil things going on, as, as Marcus said. So let's uh, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 11 and continue to read. The Apostle Paul begins saying, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. 
and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Let's pray together. Father, as we enter into this disagreement that had been taking place amongst the Corinthians in the church. Lord, help us to understand the mindset of the Apostle Paul and the words that he's speaking to the church. Pray that we would understand the mind of Christ on behalf of his church, that the Spirit of God is at working in them, would be also at work within us, that we would receive this truth in this generation, that we would know how to apply it in our churches. We pray, Father, that you would give us a a love for the church that Paul had, that you would give to him through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of you have heard the story of the two prostitutes who came before the wise King Solomon uh, in the Old Testament. If you remember, they both claimed to be the mother of the same baby, right? Uh, These two women had lived in the same house, had given birth around the same time, and uh, one of the babies had died in the middle of the night when the mother rolled over on top of him. And so, thinking quickly, she got up, she exchanged her dead baby for the other woman's living baby. But then the next morning when the second woman woke up, she recognized the dead baby at her side was not, in fact, her own. didn't look like her child. So she brought the matter before the king, probably having to try to get justice on her own. didn't work, so she brings it before King Solomon. Of course, they both come before the king. They both swear that the child is theirs. Now, there were no social security numbers back then. No tags on their ankles, nothing of that nature. How would you know which one is which? Well, as you know, the, the testimony was heard from both parties by the King Solomon, and so he had a simple solution. 
well, you both deserve to have your child. So I'm going to give you both part of that child. Let's cut it in half. That way, at least both of you get a half of a kid to take home. Otherwise, there would be no justice. So, of course, the the first woman who had exchanged the babies in the middle of the night seemed to be okay with this solution. Whereas the latter woman immediately pleaded with the king not to harm the child, but to give him to the other woman who was not the rightful mother. Uh, Solomon, immediately recognizing the mother's love and selfless desire for her own child, awarded her the child. It's interesting, we're never told what happened to the other woman, (laughs) Uh, whether she received some other act of justice in addition to the pain and suffering she'd already experienced. Can you imagine having killed your own child by accident? That'd be a tough one. Well, in a sense, you could say that the entire epistle of the Second Corinthians is like that ancient court case. Because basically, you have two parties claiming to be the rightful parent, if you will, the rightful leader of the church. On the one hand, the Apostle Paul had planted the church in Corinth, so you would think it would automatically be something related to him. He had spent a year and a half teaching there, had spent many day in, day out, teaching them faithfully from the Word of God, but lately he's been away, seemingly abandoning them to go plant churches elsewhere. And even after he said he would come to be with them, he changed his mind and did not show up. So they begin to wonder, does he really care for them at all? Meanwhile, these self-proclaimed super-apostles have come into the church. They've been there for some time. Now they've been teaching regularly. Now they have been doing seemingly good works amongst the church. Of course, they've been saying that the Apostle Paul is a very weak apostle, if that. He's uh, certainly one to be despised, who never really cared for them, and probably was actually trying to trick them in some way or another, saying that he was not taking any salary from them, but yet was continually asking for an offering to be given to Jerusalem so that maybe he could line his own pockets. How would you determine (laughs) which is the truth? The Apostle Paul laid out his case against his antagonist, saying that they were just peddlers of God's word. They didn't care for the church at all. They were false prophets. He even accused them of being ministers of Satan. He says they have not built up the church, but rather continually divided it. They demand an exorbitant salary to be paid by the church, and yet they continually make the members of the church their slaves. They had not accidentally rolled on top of the church, killing it by their negligence. But Paul is saying they have been actively tearing it apart, actively cutting it in two out of their own greed and self-promotion. If King Solomon were presiding over this case, it wouldn't be hard for him to see the love and the selflessness of the Apostle Paul and immediately award the church to him. But the Apostle Paul is not the one sitting in judgment on this case. Rather, it's the Corinthians themselves who have put themselves in the place of judgment, perhaps by necessity, but also uh, because they have not been thinking through this very clearly. If you remember in the the first epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul had already opened himself up to the judgment of the church because they were already judging him. And he says to them, For me, it is a very small thing, 
that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So he acknowledges the fact that they've already been judging him, and even if they do judge him, he's not worried about it because ultimately God is his judge. But nevertheless, he does say on a number of occasions in that first epistle to judge what he is saying for themselves. In other words, is he telling them the truth? Is he preaching the truth to them? Take the word of God and judge what he's saying by that. Paul had no desire whatsoever for the church in Corinth to take him at his word simply because he said so. He wanted them to be like the Bereans and go back and see the word of God for themselves and compare what he was saying with the truth of the gospel. The other people, the false apostles, on the other hand, had no sense of this accountability. They weren't being asked to be judged in any way or having their words being judged in any way. And as a result, it was very hard to know who was telling the truth if you didn't go back to the Word of God and see for yourself. That's the problem in the churches, oftentimes, when churches do not go back to the Word of God and it just becomes a personality contest. I like this person. I like this person. This is what was happening in Corinth. Remember, some were saying, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollo. Some were saying, I follow Christ, or I follow someone else altogether. But what do you do in a church when these types of things are happening? How do you know if someone is speaking the truth? Well, an apostle is different from a pastor. Let's start there. But let's go back even further to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, how did you know if someone was really a prophet or not? If they were really called by God or not? Well, ultimately, it would come down to the fact that what they had said must come true. So if they had made prophecies, they had seen visions that predicted things to come true, and it didn't come true, then you weren't to listen to them. Deuteronomy 18, Moses makes this very plain, that if someone comes to you and claims to be a prophet of God and foretells something in the future that does not come to pass, you're to put that man to death. You're not to listen to what he has to say. You're not to follow his leadership whatsoever. But what about in the New Testament with the apostles? Both these people... On the one hand, the super apostles and the apostle Paul both claimed to have visions from God, both claimed to be speaking on behalf of God. How would you know which one is telling the truth? Again, if they made predictions, it would be easy. This one said this was going to happen, and it didn't, come hap- it didn't come to pass. But it doesn't seem as if anyone is making any types of predictions, so then what do you do? Well, then you go to the signs of the powers of the prophets or the apostles themselves. The difference between an apostle and a pastor is, as a pastor, I'm not, I'm not giving you any new word from God. I'm only giving you what the word of God already says. I'm trying to explain it more fully to you by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to you the truth of God's word. But the apostles were giving new revelation. Why would you listen to what they had to say? How did you know they were telling you the words of God and not their own words? Well, that's where the power of these signs and wonders came in. Verse 12, Paul mentions it almost in passing, that a true apostle could be identified by their signs, their wonders, their mighty works that were performed in their midst. And and apparently Paul has done this, he says, many times with the greatest patience among them, that they would believe that what he was saying was coming from God. Now, you'll notice that the other apostles never accuse him of being a weak apostle in terms of his powers, probably because they had none themselves. They couldn't match whatever miracles he had performed in the past, but again, he's been gone for some time. And so, as you know, miracles don't continue to keep you believing. <laughs> you want more miracles. Prove it to me again. Prove it to me again. What were the Pharisees coming? Show us a sign. Show us a wonder. Show us that you are the Son of God in that sense. 
But Paul, interestingly, doesn't tell us what the miracles were that he performed in Corinth. Neither does Luke in the book of Acts. In other places he does, but he doesn't in this particular case. I don't know why. Uh, but we know that Paul is capable as an apostle of performing these signs to prove that what he's saying is true. Uh, we know that because in Galatia, uh, in the town of Lystra, he had healed a man born lame from birth. And afterwards, all the people in the town start to want to worship Paul because of the great powers that he exhibited. But he wanted to show them that he was speaking on behalf of God. So he healed this man in such a powerful way. Similarly, if you remember when he was in the town of Philippi, he had cast the, the demon out of the woman that had been enslaved to these men for a long period of time. And as a result, again, there was a whole uh, great attention that was brought to him in the city to hear what he had to say. Similarly, uh, in the city of Troas, maybe you remember, uh, he had also uh, brought a young man back from the dead after he had fallen from the third-story window because he had fell asleep during Paul's sermons. I don't recommend that. Bad things happen. But again, conversely, Paul's antagonists had no such miracles that they could perform, yet they made many claims to spiritual visions that couldn't be proved one way or the other. So again, how would you tell which one was telling the truth? They both had claims to visions. Well, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we sometimes call it the love chapter, right? There Paul says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. What is he saying there? Why is he saying that? Again, there are people in the church, men in the church, who are claiming to have all these prophecies and all this power and all this vision, and yet they do not love the people in the church. He says, even if they could do this and they could speak in the tongues of angels and see heavenly visions, it means nothing if they do not love the church. Paul, on the other hand, continues to point out to them again and again in 1 and 2 Corinthians how much he loves them. And he shows, he shows it by Many different demonstrations, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he shares with them, he wrote this letter to them, the second epistle to the Corinthians, because of the abundant love that he has for them. He said, I'm writing to you not to prove my point to you, not to defend myself to you, but to show you how much I love you. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 11, we, we talked about this a week ago. The question is, do I not love you? God knows that I do. He's taking God's name as an oath to say, you know, God knows how much I love you. Six times in the epistle, he refers to the people in Corinth as beloved, but not as simply God's beloved. He says, you are my beloved. He says, I love you. God knows I love you. And this is the fruit of the Spirit that Paul is focusing on rather than the power of the Spirit that these false apostles are relying upon. Admittedly, this can be confusing to us because every now and then we see someone who can be a really good preacher, can astound people with his rhetoric, and can just have thousands and thousands of people follow him. You know who I'm talking about. You've seen these people on television that sometimes can be complete heretics and have nothing to do with Christ, and yet thousands of people follow them. 
simply because of the power that they're exerting. Paul says you cannot rely upon the power alone. You have to rely upon the fruit of the Spirit. Otherwise, what we have in Matthew chapter 7 can be very confusing. When Jesus says, not everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will enter into God's kingdom. For on that day, some will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And yet he still can say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. The power of the Spirit is not enough. You need the fruit of the Spirit. Think of it this way. Judas Iscariot, from what we know of him, there was nothing to distinguish him from the other apostles, the other disciples. Presumably, he was administering the same power of God that the rest of them were. I mean, after all, the Lord's Supper, they had all healed people. They had all cast out demons. They had gone from town to town doing this. And then finally at the Lord's Supper, when it says, who here is the person who's going to reject Christ? If they knew that Judas couldn't do any of these things, they're like, oh, it's Judas, obviously. He's the loser. He can't do any of the stuff that we do. No, he, he was doing the same things. Somehow God was still working in power on this man to be able to do these things, and yet he was a, a false professor. We see the same thing in the Old Testament, King Saul, right? The power of God comes on King Saul, and he begins to prophesy. Even in some sort of ecstatic utterance, he's saying things that, that are the very words of God, and yet he doesn't seem to know God himself. Even Balaam, we think in a false prophet who has nothing to do with things. Somehow God is speaking through this false prophet and pronouncing the blessing upon Israel, and yet he hates Israel. How is that possible? You cannot rely upon the power of the spiritual realm to know who's telling the truth. You have to look at the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul keeps pointing them back to this spiritual fruit that you ought to be able to see in the lives of God's men. Why should the church listen to Paul and not to these other men? Because he loves them and these other men do not. They're demanding their pay from the Corinthians, criticizing Paul constantly, saying that he's unworthy of, a, of an apostle's wages, and yet Paul continues not to take a dime from them because he knows that the Corinthians have such an idol over money. They want to control him through the money. He's not allowing them to do that. He doesn't allow them to control him in any way. He wants to continue to give and to sacrifice and to show his love for them, and yet they keep wanting to say, please, let us pay for you, and he won't let them do it. And it's because of this, he says, I'm the true parent of the child here. Look in verse 14 and 15. He says, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents for their children. Therefore, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He's showing them by his love and his sacrifices, even though he had the right to earn his wages as an apostle, as all the other apostles did, he wouldn't take it so that he could continue to show them he was not doing this to line his own pockets. He was not doing this to gain some power and advantage over them because that's, what they, that's how they thought. That's how they functioned was through power. He said, I'm not going to do it through showing my power and authority over you. I'm going to do it through love. 
But then he asked the question, where's your love in return? Instead of them loving him, they have constantly judged him, critiqued him left and right. Even when these false apostles came and began accusing Paul of things, they didn't stand up for him. They didn't defend his ministry. They didn't say, look what he's done. Look at all, these, all the sacrifices he's made, all the time he spent with us, teaching us the word of God, pointing us to Christ. They didn't do any of that. And so he again, he again tells them, I, I'm not writing this letter to you to defend myself to you. I don't care what you think of me. But I'm writing to you to help you see I've done all of this out of love for you. The key difference between his ministry and that of the apostles is that he, through the love of Christ, wants to see the church thrive. They, on the other hand, are happy to see the church torn in two because of their own greed, because of their own pride, because of their own indifference to the state of the church itself. They do not care about the church. All they care about is themselves. And that's the very reason that Paul said he had delayed in coming to see them. Because if he came immediately, it would cause more division. He wanted them to think through these things, to pray through these things, to to examine rightly what's exactly happening in the church. They weren't thinking clearly. So he shares with them in verses 20 and 21 that he's afraid that when he arrives at the church, it will be so full of sin, quarreling, jealousy, slander, gossip, disorder, all those conflicting sins because they can't seem to listen. They can't seem to to judge rightly. And then in addition, he says, and I'm also afraid that when I come, you'll still be suffering in all sorts of weird sexual sin as well because you didn't listen the first time I'll talk to you. And now you're just open to everything. He said, I don't want to come because if I come, I have to come in judgment, and I don't want to do that. Why? Because I love you, and I want to see you repent. I want to come granting you more grace and mercy, but I, if I come now, I'm going to have to come in judgment. He's afraid to come, not only because he, he himself will be humbled by their great backslidings, if you will, but because he's going to have to deal with it as an, as an apostle of Christ with authority. He can't just come and say, oh, I feel so bad for you guys. He has to come proving the word of God that's being spoken through him. He has to deal with it authoritatively. So he reminds them, if you look in chapter 13, verse 2, how he had warned them previously that if he were to come again in the condition that he was afraid that he would find them, he says, I won't spare you. I will met out the judgment that's fully deserved. Even though these super apostles are saying, I'm not going to do this, if I come and you don't repent, I'm coming in judgment. That's not what I want to do. I would prefer not to do that. I would desperately prefer not to do that. And so in verse 3, he explains that they were seeking proof that he was an apostle. Again, he had already shown them the signs and wonders that he was able to do. They're still looking for him to show his power. He's like, is that really what you want? You really want me to show my power? You really want me to show my authority? Don't ask for that because you're not going to like it when you see it. I'm not going to like it when I come, and you're going to hate it when I come because I will not come without demonstrating the power and authority of Christ as his apostle. In other words, I'm going to come with great discipline. Think of the passage we read earlier. The reason why we read that really long passage 
in Numbers chapter 16 is because I'm, I'm almost positive the Apostle Paul has this in mind. He's saying, I don't want it to be like this. I don't want to come, and all of a sudden the earth has to swallow up some of the people of this church because you've rejected the Apostle of Christ. I don't want to come and see people burned alive, fire coming into the sanctuary and burning people alive, or having a plague break out and kill 15,000 people in church because you won't receive the truth of God's word from his apostle. Now, you think I'm, I'm exaggerating this. Maybe. <laughs> think of it this way. Did not the apostle Peter speak condemnation to Ananias and Sapphira? Did not immediately he bring the judgment of God upon them because they treated so lightly and reverently the worship of God, lying through the Holy Spirit? Do you remember already in 1 Corinthians, we've already seen judgment break out against the Corinthians? Do you remember? 1 Corinthians 11. They were taking the Lord's Supper. And what does Paul say happened to them because they didn't take it rightly? He says, some of you have gotten sick and some of you have died because you have treated the Word of God with irreverence. You have disrespected the cross of Christ. And as a result, something horrible has happened in your midst. Now, did that happen as a result of Paul's Word immediately? Or did it happen immediately by the power of the Spirit? He doesn't say. But as an apostle of Christ, clearly Paul has the ability to bring judgment when it needs to be brought. He doesn't want to bring it. You'll notice in our text that Paul uses the same language here in chapter 13 as he did in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, examine yourselves. Why does he tell them to examine themselves in chapter 11? Because he doesn't want the judgment of God to break out in their midst. He says to them again, examine yourselves so that I don't have to. Judge yourselves so I don't have to. Verse 5 in our text, he says again, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. All this time, the church has been judging him, and yet they haven't judged themselves. They've examined him, but they haven't examined their own hearts. And as a result, obviously they haven't been judging rightly. And so when he comes... He's afraid that he'll have to pronounce judgment upon those who have not judged themselves rightly. Think of it this way. Um, do you remember the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Was it because he didn't like their food? Was it because it seemed so far away? No. It's because he didn't want to see God give them mercy. He wanted them to feel the full wrath of God. Do you remember his long sermon that he preached that's recorded in Scripture? He basically says, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. Mic drop. And then he goes up to the city on a hill outside the city, and he waits. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for a nuclear bomb to be dropped upon Nineveh for it to be blown to smithereens and all of them to die and their flesh to be burned alive. That's what he's looking for. And he's angry when God doesn't do it. He's angry when God gives them mercy. Do you remember why James and John were called the sons of Boanerges? 
Remember that? Literally means sons of thunder. Because they had gone to Samaria to prepare the way for Christ to come and to do some sort of ministry in their midst. And so they do. They go and prepare, and Christ is coming, and they don't want to hear anything he has to say. And so immediately James and John say to the Lord Jesus with great exuberance, Lord, just give us the word. We'll call down condemnation for fire to come down from heaven to destroy them all. What does Jesus do? He rebukes them sternly. You don't understand the mercy of God. You see. Do you remember Moses and Aaron as God is about to bring this plague? Even before he brings it, already Moses and Aaron are on their faces. Lord, have mercy upon your people. They don't know what they're doing. And immediately this plague breaks out. Because that's not their heart. They don't have the same heart that Jonah had originally. They don't have the same heart that James and John had originally. Again, I I imagine this is very early on in, in James and John's understanding of things, certainly long before the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But the Apostle Paul doesn't want to come and bring judgment. He doesn't want to come and bring wrath. He wants them to examine themselves so that when he comes... He can grant them mercy, knowing, yes, you have sinned against an apostle of Christ, yet I forgive you. I want you to know the mercy of God and Jesus Christ. To understand what Jesus says, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. He wants to grant mercy. Paul's antagonist had no comprehension of the mercy of Christ. They didn't care for the mercy of Christ. They're the ones edging Paul on. Show us your power. Show us your authority. Bring it. You're such a big man. Judge us all. And the people are going, yeah, that's right. Yeah, show us your power. Idiots. It's no different what the the super apostles are doing in in Corinth than what Satan was doing with Jesus when he told him, let's go up to the, the top of the pinnacle of Jerusalem. Throw yourself down. Let's see what happens. Let's endanger your life. If God really cares for you, he'll save you. Do you see? The devil's trying to kill Christ. The devil's followers are trying to kill his church. Every generation, this happens. Every generation. Every church is faced by this at some point in time where someone comes into the church and seeks to rip it in part, split it right down the middle, and says, that's my baby, but I don't care. But that's not Paul's desire at all. Just as Christ, if you remember, warned the church in Ephesus, he says, repent so that when I come, I don't have to put out the lampstand. That when I come, I don't have to come in judgment upon you and close the doors of the church altogether. I want to give you mercy. Repent. That's Paul's desire. He doesn't want, he can come with judgment. He can come in authority and power. He doesn't want to. Now, I I certainly hope that uh, none of you are experiencing this in the moment. (laughs) If so, especially if you're a part of our church, our church is in grave trouble if you're having to think deeply about this at the moment with this particular scenario. But I do think Scripture talks to us about these things in advance because they will come. Satan finds many different ways to rip a church apart. And all of a sudden, you're going to hear two different stories. And you're going to want to know who to believe. 
contrary to what you might expect, I'm not going to tell you always believe what I say or what the elders say or what the leadership of the church says. It's not always the one in authority who actually wants to preserve the baby. Sometimes they're just as eager to rip the church apart themselves out of their own pride and ego. It happens. Sometimes those who are challenging the authority in the church are doing so because they love the church and don't want to see it die. Sometimes both parties want to see the church split apart, and they're very happy seeing it, dude. They're, out of their own desire to be right, out of their own sense of ego, out of their own pride, they're like, well, to hell with those. We're going to go our way. You go yours. There's no sense of mercy. But how do you know which voice to listen to when these things happen? Don't listen to the voice that simply says, love is everything. The ones who seek to redefine love to mean you accept everyone's sin no matter what. Don't listen to that voice because that voice wants to destroy the church too. The one that says we accept everything, we accept everybody, doesn't matter what they do, that's of the devil. But also on the other hand of the spectrum, you've got love on the one end, you've got truth on the other. Don't listen to the ones who just are happy to fight about every little thing and are happy to tell everyone how they're wrong and they're condemning everybody to hell. Obviously, there's something wrong with them. There's never a desire in Christ to just want to destroy everything. You know, there is a, there is a Hindu god. He's called the destroying god. That's his, that's his sole job. He just wants to destroy everything in his path. That's not God's desire. His natural disposition is he's called a god of love, but he has to come in judgment. It's not he's eager to come in judgment. He has to out of his own jealous love for his own people. He has to come in judgment. But that's not his, that's not his first desire. You need to listen to the one who not only loves God, loves Christ, but also loves the church, wants to see it preserved, who is willing to speak the truth in love, the one who's continuing to promote mercy, never eager, never excited, never rushing to judgment, but the one who's very slow to these things, just as God taught us his own character, someone who's very slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. If we follow God, we follow Christ, we'll have that same pattern. We'll be slow to anger, and yet that doesn't mean you'll never be angry. Notice it's slow to anger. Not someone who's always happy, always. But rather, they, they are the ones who are indeed of God. Because the Scripture says time and time again, if you love God, you'll love His church. You'll want to see it thrive. You'll want to see it grow. Even if that means painful Discipline at times. You'll want to see it grow. So in order for us to consider these things, know that this is not a sermon about how do I, you know, three steps to how do I live a, a better life on my own as a Christian. Notice almost the entire letter of 2 Corinthians keeps going back to this theme again and again and again. How do you stand in relationship to his church? Do you love his church? Are you willing to do the right things to promote peace and purity in his church? Because God actually cares what you do in relationship to his church. If you hate his church, you hate him. 
He makes that very, very plain. But if you love Christ, you'll love his church, and you'll pray for her just as you pray for Israel. Pray for her protection. Pray for her, her love, her growth, her unity. At any moment, the devil's ready to attack it. And he does, and he has, and he will. Pray for Christ's church. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we know that there are many parachurch organizations out there that are, that are good ministries that have come alongside the church and have helped us in many different ways accomplish some things that we couldn't accomplish as a local body. We thank you for the denominations that even though we know that at times we would love to see all of them get together and, and, and to do the same work together in the name of Christ, agreeing in unity of heart and mind, the same doctrines, one faith, one hope, one love, one baptism, all these things. That's our desire, Lord. We want to see that. But at the same time, we know that in our weakness and in our sinful dispositions and, and even our pride, we don't always see eye to eye on a lot of things. We pray that you continue to help us to love one another, encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever church they're found. But we pray also for your local churches, Lord, wherever they've been planted. Lord, have mercy upon them this day. Lord, help them to stand up for the truth this day. We pray that you would weed out of the church all those who want to divide her out of their own selfish interest and gain. Father, we pray that the truth would be known, that those who love Jesus Christ would be clearly seen, distinguished from those who do not. And Lord, that your people would know who to listen to. They would be able to make good judgments based upon the Word of God. Father, we pray that you would preserve your church for the generations to come. And here in America and around the world, in Jesus' name we pray.